0: setting the stage. Episode 2, Karina and Siokota. Uh, our guest today is Karina. Hi, Karina. Welcome to the show. Can uh, You start off by introducing yourself and telling us a little about who you are outside of Dungeons & Dragons.
1: My name is Karina and I am a college student majoring in English because I've just always, it, it's always been a strong interest of mine like like storytelling and stuff. It's just that's that's like that is my thing. Um so I'm kinda trying to be the best storyteller that I can be, trying to further my education in that regard. Um other than just like education and interest and stuff like that, um I I would say I'm a little bit on the naturey side. I kinda if I get cooped up inside for too long, um I I, I start doing not so well. <laughs> My family runs cattle, so I have to be out in the country all the time. Yeah, it's sometimes even if it's just like just a drive from point A to point B and it's like it's gonna be a short fifteen minute thing, there's a need to be outside.
0: Do you have a lot of like nature stuff around where you are?
1: Uh yeah, kind of. Um there's definitely a lot of forested areas, a lot of open fields, rivers, stuff like that. Um I'm in close proximity to quite a few lakes for um for fishing.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool.
1: And all that's being, and also I, I grew up, um, constantly being brought out to the country. So it's always been like nature's been like a huge part of just my life, and that's that's influenced a lot of my storytelling as well. It usually has just a, some some kind of strong presence in anything I write.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's good to have like that personal connection to your work. That's good.
1: Yeah. Maybe I do a little bit too much sometimes. I'm trying to, I'm trying different things in other areas, but it's always usually one of those core things that I mess with in just anything.
0: Right. Well, let's uh, let's get started on the D and D portion. Um. All right. How did you start playing, and um, how did you start becoming a DM after that?
1: Um, I started playing several years ago in high school, sort of. It was weird. There was... A friend of mine got really into... I believe she got into D&D podcasts, and there just so happened to be, like, a and d club at her school. And so she's like, Hey, you know, do you want to join this with me? And I had absolutely no idea what it was, but I was like, you know what? Sure. And unfortunately, that first original club, it ended up fizzling out. That was um—that fourth edition, I believe. Um, It fizzled, and it kind of... We played like one session, so I guess that's technically my first time playing D&D. Um, and it kind of, um, it, it fell out of my mind for several years until my friends started bringing up D&D again. And this time around, she's like, you know what, I'm, I'm just going I'll, to, I'll DM a campaign. And that just so happened to line up with another D&D club at this high school. Um, and we kind of... That's kind of the start of that at least um, her campaign my friend's campaign that she ran that was my first i like solid d and d experience um, that lasted more than a single session at least right which now this is this is five e now not 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 fourth edition um, I started dming though when that that aforementioned club they um i think we did we We broke it up into like two semesters. The first semester had a few DMs and I was a player in one of those guys' campaigns. Um, But then once the semester ended, the club was like, hey, we need new DMs to, you know, do things for the club. And I was starting to get an idea for a story that I wanted to do. And I volunteered to DM. But that's right about when COVID hit. So I never ended up doing it for the school, but I did start DMing for my friends.
0: That's a pretty big... uh high school D D club to have multiple dms
1: yeah we had a decent number i know that we um our numbers were large enough to at least we had a we were actually one of the uh one of the floats in our homecoming parade i was in that <laughs> oh, wow okay so nerdy and i you know i was nerd in front of the entire town but you know what? i don't regret it
0: <laughs> we just had one per class for our homecoming float parade thing so uh, nothing nothing oh, that see. diverse as different clubs that's pretty cool
1: we did. Uh, I think our thing was like per club.
0: All right, cool. Yeah, I think the D and D club at my school had like five or six people, and it was small enough that I didn't even care to go to it. I was just playing with my friends instead.
1: Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, we definitely had several times the amount of people.
0: Okay. Yeah. So you started playing, and then you started DMing. Um, is that when you started making your campaign world, or is that did that develop after that initial DMing that you did?
1: A bit of both. I'm. I'm still DMing. Uh basically the same campaign. It's been, like, two years since then. Um, it was basically um, mostly me just, like, homebrewing a campaign, and there was actually... Um, I'd have to, gosh, I'd have to go find the books, but mostly my own homebrew thing, but I I took a lot of inspiration from... I have... I don't know where this stands in, like, the, um, the official stuff for D&D, but I have a bunch of these little books that are on... Um, the dragons, and I got them when I was like too little to even know what like D and D was, and I just like grew up with that, and then I later found out that it was a bunch of just D and D stuff, and it's just a bunch of like information, just um, supplemental stuff on like dragons, and so I wanted to do something with that, um, so I guess I took that from a, like a lot of the official stuff, but I'm not super familiar with most of like the actual like lore. I just kind of did my own thing.
0: Okay. Um, well, uh, what is the, the name of your campaign world and, um, what's a, can you give us like a physical description of it?
1: Okay. The name of the campaign world as a whole is Terra, which is mostly an oceanic planet that just has, it has a single continent on it, like polar caps and archipelagos, and that's it. It's just ocean otherwise. Okay. Um. Regarding... I think the most developed thing is that main continent, and specifically where my current campaign is taking place is a country called Siakodai, which is a very, um, it's, I, I wouldn't call it entirely temperate, but it's supposed to be kind of, It's it's got a mix of like hot and cold areas, but mostly it's just that like typical, like, you know, like forested or like Rocky Mountains mm-hmm. kind of setting.
0: Okay. Can um, you get more specific for Siakodai? Is that the same as the rest of the continent, or is it a little bit different?
1: So, the rest of the continent, um, so I kind of did, there's there's a total of four different, um, I guess you could say, countries in the continent. Um, and Siakodai, they're all kind of based around, um, I think it's like, it's cold, temperate, warm, and then one that's a little bit of something else. Uh, Siakodai, again, it's got like temperate forests, rocky mountains, but it also does have like a desert and some snowy mountains and taigas uh one of the other countries is a lot of um more taigas and like snowy mountains but that one has a lot more tundras uh moorland um kind of things like that there's also i think there's a small volcanic chain over there i also this is really nerdy i'm also really into um uh geology i have like the um what is it the tectonic plates mapped out as well
0: oh okay. That's a little side cool. comment
1: there um but so one of that so that country is supposed to be more of that cold themed one and another one the the warm themed one is a lot of uh savannas, deserts, rainforest, jungle, um that kind of thing. Okay. Uh the last the last country quote unquote is a little funky cuz that one's it's a mix of very high snowy mountains and like deep rich green valleys. But that's also the portion where that's like right above the Underdark, which is uh, which is a thing that I did bring into my setting, um, and mm-hmm. that's kind of the Underdark's one of the highlight regions of that. That 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 area's kind of funky as a whole though, and it's I've not I think that's the one that I've worked on the least because it's been the least pro or going there for the party at least has been like the least plot
0: relevant at the moment. I think everybody brings the Underdark in some form, like just having monsters underneath the ground is pretty primal
1: yeah i mean it's it's the under like it's just it's just fun to have
0: okay so that's the the physical groundwork and you said most of your your stuff isn't in each of those countries it's in the, the country siakotai can you tell me more about like the the people are there and like the political structure of that that country
1: um the, the, the people, it's, I tried to, um this was kind of mostly for my players. I wanted, like, them to have, like, a freedom of choice when it came to, like, uh, what race they wanted their character to be. So Kodai has almost everything, um, but there are some more dominant species. And I kind of, I, I have Kodai split up into four regions, which is um, Chaparral, Desert, Forest, and Mountains. And each one kind of has a different, like, dominant race. Um, Mountains would be arakokra and Goliath. Forest is Kenku and Elves, Chaparral is Halflings, and Desert is Tortles and Lizardfolk. Regarding the political climate of the whole thing, there kind of isn't one, and that's kind of a a big part of the plot and a big part of the whole problem that needs to be solved with Kodai. Each of the regions does kind of have a little bit of their own thing going on. Right now in the campaign, actually the desert, the whole system that they used to have just got overthrown, and a new system is being brought in. Um, the chaparral region.
0: Chaparral, for the people who are listening in their car and might not have access to a dictionary, is. Uh, do you want to explain it?
1: Um, that's actually uh, that's actually technically the biome like where I live. Um, it's a lot of it's. I was, It's like very dry. Um, like like shrubland. Um, you're thinking, like, dry forests with, like, a lot of, like, open grassy areas with a handful of trees. Um, I believe white oaks is very common. Um, it's it's just very, like, dry, kind of scrubland-ish sort of biome. Um, kind of, I think... But it
0: still gets water, so it's not like a desert.
1: Uh, yeah, it still does get water. Not very much. It, um... I, I kind of know a lot about the water system here. There's kind of, um... It's mostly it, it kind of has not really proper seasons. It's mostly there's like a dry and a wet um, in my life experience at least. Um, mm-hmm. the, it it gets water um on rare occasions.
0: Okay, but I mean you have you have enough plants that you wouldn't say it's like a, a real desert.
1: Yeah, it's not really a real desert. I um I would compare it to like to describe I guess what it looks like. I would call it like imagine like an oak savanna. It's weird.
0: Okay. No, I, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're getting into the political discussion. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um. So that one's kind of lacking in an overall connected system, which again is part of the whole problem. Uh, the mountainous area does have a kingdom, but since the region is so large, it's very it's lacking in proper connections at least. But it does have a kingdom, and the forest is probably where the most interesting stuff is happening when it comes to the political stuff it is currently in the middle of a civil war
0: oh okay so it's a country but i feel like this is more like a region because you have like one kingdom within the country and like a a civil war that doesn't even involve that kingdom
1: yeah it's kind of it's really as the part uh, the parties come to learn over the course of the campaign it's Xia kodai can barely be called like a proper country it's kind of just a mess.
0: Okay. Um so from what you said it like it it used to be a country, is that right?
1: Uh yes, it used to be a proper country. It used to be properly unified, but there's been kind of this there was a cataclysmic event that caused a massive downfall.
0: All right. Um do you want to give more details on that or is that, you know, don't want my players listening in on the podcast? <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah, cuz I I know they're going to be listening in on this. Um they don't know too much about the cataclysm right now. Um, they know that it had to do with the downfall of Siakodai's pantheon of gods, and that the gods are kind of... its They're kind of nearly totally forgotten. And it's also kind of the point where they've realized that Siakodai kind of stopped recording its own history, which is definitely not something that any country should ever
0: do. Okay. Um, what, what are the, the gods that uh, exist in seekota uh, uh, or don't exist anymore
1: well they well I guess there is one that technically doesn't exist um technically there's a pantheon of 10 they're all um, like how I mentioned earlier with me being a very uh, nature themed all of the gods in Siakotai at least are, are are themed around nature and uh, more specifically I kind of base them all around um, the the different like damage types that would be like you know like radiant fire cold lightning stuff like that um so that's that's why okay. there's 10 of them um technically it, it gets kind of funky with there's this technical 11th um the party found out that one of the gods was killed off and was then reincarnated as a new one and there's a lot of blurred lines over like whether it's a new individual or not they're not the party doesn't know quite yet um but that one kind of took over the uh the cold element
0: okay and what were they before? Uh,
1: it's it was still cold. Um, it's just that they kind of one god died, another god kind of reincarnated/slash took its place. Party's not a hundred percent sure what happened with that one.
0: Okay. And my experience with gods is it can easily be be both.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like that sometimes. Uh,
0: yeah, my gods are in my campaign are based off of the the Greek gods. Um, so you know, oftentimes, like I have. I have to choose which myth I'm going to have be like the, the real story. Ah. Um, Cause I, I think, well, for example, Aphrodite has like three different uh, sets that are, are her parents. Mm. See. So that can change like her relationships with the other gods. So, I mean, you can pick one that's true or you can just say, yeah, they're all true. And it just depends on what you need to be true at the time.
1: That is, that's a very interesting perspective on things. That's kind of cool.
0: So ten elements, uh or uh, I'll
1: say ten and a half damage types, I guess. Um
0: yeah, ten ten and a half. Um what made you go for that? Just uh, seemed seem something interesting at the time or
1: um it's I god actually that is a great question. How did I end up doing this? Um I think it is a little bit of like an interesting at the time sort of thing. Um I think so I, I know I knew that I wanted to do a pantheon of some sort and I was slowly building it over the course of time. And I think I wanted to give myself like a set limit for like um, how many gods there would be, and to give them a certain theme. And I mm-hmm. I don't know why I picked um, the damage types, but I I just thought like I I think it would be a neat way to like kind of connect them to some of the mechanics of D and D. So I think that's why I did that. Um, different pantheons that I have in the worlds, which are usually associated with the different countries, um, they might be associated with different things. For example. Um, one of the countries, um, their pantheon has eight gods, and each one is based around a school of magic.
0: So the, the different countries have different gods?
1: Uh, yes, they're technically—the type of entity is very similar. They're all—oh, um... this is also a thing that I, I did. Um, all of them, they're elementals. And that was kind of—I think I wanted to do something that I hadn't really seen before. I, I've seen a lot of like um, gods associated usually with like celestials, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go for an entirely different approach. And I went with elemental. So they're all um a specific type of elemental. Um but they different usually the different countries, yes, they have um different pantheons and like with Code being based around nature, um a different one, the one that I gave the, you know, example, that one's based around magic.
0: Uh okay, so if they're all elementals, does that mean they're they're less like anthropomorphic in how they look? Or do they look more like just a manifestation of nature? If you have a physical representation.
1: They are, um, they're all kind of um, like, I I call them all like beast gods of sorts. I was, um, a big inspiration for the campaign was um, Shadow of the Colossus and uh, Pray for the Gods, which Pray for the Gods was inspired by Shadow. Um, So they're all, they're all, they're all very animalistic, um, but they all kind of have some funky thing going on with each of them. And uh for example, one of them, which would be the fire god, is, is a coyote. But as I described him to the party, he was kind of like a dried corpse animated by fire.
0: Okay. Alright. Yeah, you know, I, I guess with ten gods you do have to like wrap some things together, right? So is that one fire and death for the dried corpse part?
1: Um, so that one that one's element at least is fire. Um not quite a god of death. I think that one's I'd have to go look through my notes, but that one's supposed to be um, fire, the sun, um, I think, like, chaos and madness and, like, that whole thing. Um, Not necessarily a god of death, though.
0: Okay, yeah, I guess necrotic would make more sense for death.
1: A little bit, which I do have, uh, the god that is associated with uh, necrotic is a death god, but also, like, a life god, kind of. That one's associated with, like, again, like, death, life, uh, like, rebirth, that whole thing, kind of just the cycle of nature.
0: What's the like the cultural feel to Siakotai?
1: Um so the cultural feel um it's kind of so as i mentioned how Siakotai is kind of not recording its history anymore and it's had this huge downfall and it's just this general mess its culture has kind of died off over the over the course of time um but there are still some tiny little remnants um it is still it, it still does have some connections to nature i believe um like it's not a very uncommon thing for people to just um like have like weird animal companions of some sort like if if someone walked into town being followed by like an owl bear like no one would even like blink it's, that's like just a normal thing that's like one of the last few remnants of their culture is being just very accepting of just weird nature stuff um okay dragons are very important to the entire culture that kind of has to do with like this old war thing and an organization that's Kind of fallen over the course of the campaign, but there def- there's definitely this um, this strong respect for dragons. And I believe I'm trying to remember exactly what like the law was, but it's like this is one of the few like continent-wide things that it's kind of um, it's heavily looked down upon to um, to hunt dragons. And it's like you only really mess with them if they're messing with people, and it's that's kind of like a whole thing is they're just kind of respected um that's there's another thing actually that was a recent thing um is this ties back into the whole nature thing i think it's like one other another cultural thing is that it's heavily looked down upon to like um wear any sort of like um like if you had like a fur coat or something like that it's it's seen as like super disrespectful and weird to do that because there's just such a strong bond with like the animals and with nature and that whole thing
0: that that seems very very different um most Earth culture refers like a status symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, is that that's siakotai So does that clash with the other region, the other countries, which would probably have fur?
1: One, it definitely clashes very heavily with a different country, and this one is called Bosmios. That one is, um, that one's heavily based around like technology, and Bosmios and siakotai absolutely under no circumstances they they just they do not get along at all. And so I think it's kind of they definitely because that's that that cold region that I mentioned there's probably a, like a, a heavy use of like wearing furs and stuff like that and Sea just have none of it. It's also a normal thing in yeah, that, that culture. Yeah, that was going to
0: be my next question.
1: Yeah, it's that culture also um they they do hunt dragons and that is like kind of a pro- a profession. Um and you know again Siakodai's is not they don't like that.
0: So Dragons. What what got people started unliking dragons? Have they always been nice in your campaign world? Because usually they're, you know, evil big monster.
1: Yeah, they're. Um, it's. I. I did kind of a little bit of a funky with, thing with that. It's. Um, they've not always been allied with dragons, although. In some. In. I can't get into this one too much because this is the thing that my players don't know about. Um. They. There there at least was a, at least a small past association, but there was um, this whole event with a war that was actually, it was a war with Bosmios, and that one was trying to invade and take over because this was after that cataclysmic event, and Siakodai is just, it's not a proper country, and they're just like, ah, free land. Um, what right. kind of happened is that... Um, a minor association is that during the whole war that silver dragons which are metallic and generally considered good um silver dragons helped Siakodai during the war but the dragons only became like really prevalent after um this how do i how do i explain this um there was there was an elf and a gold dragon that showed up in the middle of the war, like out of nowhere. No one, no one knows where they came from, and they showed up to help Siakodai in the war. And when this kind of this rider and this dragon showed up, it kind of prompted other people to try to form some kind of relationship with with dragons and stuff like that. And there ended up being a decently sized team of people and dragons that kind of helped turn the tide of the war and that is like the sole reason that Seaacode I won. And so after that whole event, it kind of, you know, the entire country owed its continued existence to these new these riders and these dragons. And so the dragons were like heavily respected after that and mm-hmm. some of them uh most metallic dragons, you know, because they're generally good to begin with, so there's not much of, like, a, a cultural change there in just, like, respecting them. Uh, when it comes to the chromatic, though, um, I'd have to look at my map. Um, two chromatic species, which would be red and black dragons, they're they're not super common, but they are still, like, if, if they show up and cause problems for people they, like, go out of their way to, they are hunted down, but probably, you know, only that one individual. Um, green dragons, I know that they're less likely to just, like, go around and just murder things. They're more sly and cunning with their maneuvers. They've not been too much of a problem, though. The party has fought a handful of, um, I believe... Yeah, no, the party's dealt with a few green dragons over the course of the campaign. It's, um... It's kind of the blue dragons where things are the most interesting, because if, if anyone's read about them, they are... They're a little bit more tactful, I'd say. And so they're kind of more of um they kind of kind of skirt around the rules to get things done and they're they're a little bit more I know uh what is it? I think it's like the blues are like out of all the chromatics they're the least evil generally speaking. Um so they're kind of they're they're kind of just vibing with this system. They've they figured out how to exploit it so they're just kind of they're working with it. White dragons, they're just kind of doing their own thing in the wilderness.
0: All right, that sounds fairly different from my campaign world, where uh, I have blues as the most evil. Oh, really? But you know, it's just a, it's just a pile of stats, so you can apply whatever you want to it.
1: Fair enough. Yeah, I um, I kind of like to roll with the the rules that like nothing is inherently good or evil. It just kind of depends on the circumstances that that creature was like brought up in. Um, one of the mm. gimmicks of the party, I, I mentioned the whole thing with that that small organization that formed that was between like riders and dragons. Um, one yeah. of the one of the main gimmicks of the campaign, which is like kind of the original idea that I had, was that the party was going to be new recruits into that organization, and so each of them got um, a dragon egg at the very beginning, and so you know it, it hatched over the course of the campaign, and they've been just like raising these uh, wormlings, which. I surely everyone should know that like wormling is the name for like a, a young dragon. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's in the monster manual and all of that.
1: Yeah, I just, just just quick clarification just in case, although I don't think there needs to be a just in case. Um, but so the party's kind of been like raising these wormlings, and I was I was given some in- inherent traits that uh that the player wanted for like each dragon that they were like their character was like bonded with um one of them there is there is a red dragon wormling who is he's kind of small and cowardly and he just kind of hides behind uh his partner the whole time and he he'll have nothing to do with fights
0: that's cute so they they still have the wormlings following them around at this uh, point they
1: still have the wormlings are um i think there's a whole thing with like accelerated aging for like the first few years of the wormling's life and they're it's nearly been a year in the campaign they're almost like hitting that like point of adolescence and the wormlings still do. They're still with their um their partners, and that red dragon is still, despite the fact that he's almost the size of a horse, he's still trying to hide behind his um his partner.
0: Oh, that's cute. Um, so that that sounds like it could have some balance issues, like from designing adventures if your party has what sounds like almost dragon mounts at this point.
1: Yeah, nearly. Um. The balance issue, because there was... Um, my original set of players, I really don't have them anymore. Um, only a handful of people from the original group are still here. And so actually right now, there are only two wormlings in the party. And one of them is that cowardly red dragon who... He's just... He doesn't even need to be told to stay out of fights. He's doing it on his own. He wants nothing to do with it. Um, the other dragon, though, which is a blue dragon... Um, he want, he does want to engage in things, but I've kind of, I've tried, um, balancing things with, like, enemies so that, like, there's ways to, um, kind of counter the dragon, and for the most part, though, we do try to keep, like, him at least out of combat, because it's just, it, it should be the players doing all the fighting. Yeah. But if they still need him for something, if it's, like, a big mission, they're, they're more than... I mean, they can have him along if they want if it's it's a, if it's something big and important,
0: otherwise they're trying to keep their their babies out of the pipe,
1: basically, yeah <laughs> yeah
0: um all right uh is there anything else you wanna describe about the the campaign world itself before we talk about um your the plot of your campaign that you've been running
1: um regarding the world itself, I could say so many different things because i've just tried to have like each area is kind of like doing its own thing and it's kind of has its different vibe there's there's many things that i could say but like i think you know this is because again this is like this is two years worth of me like working on this world um there's a lot of things that i could say but i think like like for right now I, i i think i'm i think i'm good
0: okay um then yeah uh what what would you say is something that um you want to talk about for your campaign? I know other people people have plenty of like um different threads that are going. Is there a particular uh campaign plot that you wanna discuss on the podcast um,
1: let's see here i've I've had a bunch of like kind of little plots and more major ones, and then like big overarching ones um I'd say. One that I could touch on um, had to do with, you know, how I, how I mentioned how there's kind of been a downfall of culture and this um, this fall of the gods. The party right now, one of the, the big arcs, and I think this is the one that they're putting most of their focus on. Um, they're kind of... Um, so the party right now, they know that part of that cataclysmic event was that each god... Was kind of separated from their soul, which their soul is like a little physical object. It's it's like a small crystal that's supposed to be like embedded in the earth, and um, so all the gods like they were separated from the souls. The souls were taken out of you know where they should be, and kind of scattered across the land. And so the party is trying to trying to bring all those souls back and maybe bring Sia back to a functional state. And um, right now they're uh, they're more than halfway done. I think they have. Six of the souls back and they're in possession of two, but they're still missing um they're still missing the other two, and they don't know where where that is right now, but that's kind of been a huge arc, and it's like the process of like a lot of adventures have been centered around them actually going and getting the souls and figuring out where they are but a lot of also like research and them like doing like lines of questioning and trying to figure things out have been around like what happened with this cataclysmic event, why did it happen? And just like like all sorts of details with that.
0: Okay, so the the gods losing their souls is related to the the cataclysm you mentioned that yes. is where Siaokotai lost its cultural identity, sort of. Yes. Okay. All right. So the the players are looking around for these little little crystal things and yeah. also looking for where the crystal things are supposed to go. Yes. It is the place they're supposed to go. Like you said, embedded in the ground. Is it just like you know you you have to follow your gps to find this spot or is it like you know the center of a temple is where um, it's embedded in the ground
1: i'm sorry the follow gps thing is great because um there's a tiny bit of that that's actually slightly accurate <laughs> um i keep for- i always keep forgetting that this is supposed to be a small detail but like the souls once um once the party's in possession of it they kind of get an idea of a direction that they need to travel in, but not nothing much more than that. Um, so that's slightly accurate. Um, but in general, they're usually looking for a temple and I believe the party knows by now, it's like the birthplace of the gods that they need to bring the souls back to. And so each one is kind of like scattered in, um, in remote regions throughout the world. And, um, some of the places that they've already brought them back to was, like, like one of them, um, where the soul should be, it was, like, the ground was carved into an obelisk. So they had to <laughs> had to get up on the top of the obelisk to put this tiny little thing in at the very top. Um, other ones um, were, like, actually, like, in the ground, and the temple was built around that site. There's another that was, like, in, um like, this funky tree of stone. They had to get into the center of that. Let's okay. see. Yeah, they're looking for a temple slash a birthplace of a divine being.
0: So the the players are just—is it just the challenge of finding these things and then uh, getting to a difficult location, or is there some force that's opposing them? I feel like that's usually how a campaign would go.
1: Um. So usually it's so it is like finding the souls and um. Uh, bringing them where they should be, but it, it is, as, as you're saying, it's not just as simple as that. Um, I think one of my favorite moments in the campaign was where uh, they were trying to find a soul that was associated with um, with a goddess of lightning. And so the soul was up at the very top of this um, this cave in a cliff, and the party had to fight a group of or a, a pair of thunderbirds to get the soul and it was also it was like it's raining it's like there's thunder and lightning everywhere they can't see anything it was it was a whole ordeal um that was probably one of my favorite fights and just like one of my favorite scenes i i freaking i love that moment
0: <laughs> yeah it's always nice to bring in like weather into the campaign yes. i I love doing that
1: yeah i am um... I have a, a bit of a dynamic weather system that I kind of, I kind of like roll for it a little bit, like each week and depending on the biome that they're in and what season it is, the chance of like, you know, Oh, is it, is it sunny? Is it cloudy? Is there some type of precipitation? Um, it kind of differs depending on the area.
0: So is that different than what's in the DMG? Cause I think there's other stuff like that in there.
1: Uh, there is a system in the, uh, in the DMG. It's just, it's a lot more, I guess you could say, um what is the word? It's, it's a little bit more random. Like, you could have, um I, I don't know if it's, like, on a weekly basis or a daily basis, but it could be, like, clear skies one day and then, like, horrible storms the next. And it's just, like, automatic. It just, it happens so quickly that it kind of bothered me. It didn't feel very realistic, so I kind of made my own system.
0: Okay. Yeah. I guess that's only realistic for, like, Florida.
1: I, you know, or uh, I've heard Kentucky.
0: <laughs> um. Okay. Um. Is there anything else you wanna to talk about?
1: Ah, uh, I got. I guess there'd be. There's all sorts of things. Um, I'm trying to think of maybe something along the lines more of like, um, like the process of building a world and like themes and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe.
0: Um. Yeah, sure. This... Um. So we already talked a bit about like your how you picked the gods. Um, it seems from. You talking about where you're living that the the physical design of your world came from just somewhat copying the the place that you're living in, but not not all the way obviously.
1: Yeah, a little,
0: um, little bit. Do you feel like there's some connection there for like the the lost identity of Siokotai to how did you get that as an idea? Because that that feels like a sort of a unusual thing and having quasi dead gods all over the place as well. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm trying to remember where did I get this idea. I think um I mentioned that like uh that Shadow of the Colossus was a big inspiration for me, and Mm -hmm. through over the course of that game, you know, there's all these like you know there's the Colossi, um but there's also this general sense that there was once a civilization here, there was something happening, but you know I know that you know it's never really properly explained like what is going on, and so I think that was an inspiration for me. It's just like the thought process of What could have once been here? And so that's kind of... I think that's what led into me doing the whole lost identity thing. Um, Also, I I thought it'd be kind of interesting, and I think I was trying to like work my way around, like, well, how did people actually forget about the gods? What happened? Um, But I I think it was that that inspiration kind of started me down this path. Um, And I've just... I've tried playing around with interesting ideas from there. Um, One... There was a time where I was um, I was telling one of my friends about, like, my world-building process, and, like, going with that whole lost identity and that whole history thing, um, I was kind of thinking, um, if you really think about it, humanity would kind of, if we, like, if we just went, like um, like, realistically speaking here, if we just went back, like, 200 years ago, and we completely stopped writing history from there, and the only way to learn anything was because, like, you know, someone nearby told you about it, um, you could probably imagine how quickly, like, society would lose its identity.
0: Yeah, yeah, there would be, I mean, places would still have identity, but it would, you would have much less of a national mm-hmm. identity.
1: And that's that's kind of an idea that I was, like, toying around with for Sea Kodai. Just, like, what happens when, not only when we lose um, our history, but when we lose communication, when there's not like an established, you know, if the only thing you know is what's happening like near you and if some traveler shows up.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's, um, I was, that reminds me of like Ursula K. Le Guin's science fiction stuff where, uh, the different human colonies on different planets are so separated through time because of how long it takes to travel between them that they basically become different species. That.
1: I, I don't believe I'm super familiar with, like, that work, but that's, I mean, that's that's pretty interesting, and that that does seem like that's how that would work.
0: Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different books that she wrote on, about the science fiction stuff. I think she wrote, like, ten that are all within the same universe, but because they're on different planets that aren't connected very well, they, aren't, they actually aren't that well connected in interesting. Like, characters or technology or anything. It's just sort of, it's all assumed to be the same universe.
1: I got you. That's neat. Yeah, it's just if if you know, if there's a lack of connection and communication, things start dividing and there's differences begin developing and especially when it's something that's you know supposed to be a nation, doesn't write its history, has no idea who who it is, it's just lost all of that, things just kind of start falling apart.
0: Mhm. Yeah, yeah, totally. That that definitely makes sense. Yeah. And I can see how having all of your gods uh, go into sleep i guess because they're not quite dead
1: uh they're kind uh, of think um how do i say very lacking in power and very not mentally here right now
0: mm-hmm.
1: um yeah yeah i think
0: yeah not knocked out knocked unconscious i guess
1: not quite Can't um get all
0: d par- on it
1: the party knew that, um one of them was preferring to stay in some type of slumber. There was another one that was like wandering the desert, trying to find things, but he was so out of it he doesn't even know what he's looking for or why he's looking mm, okay. um just and you know if you have like a vast massive freaking desert with absolutely no one in it he's uh he's probably not gonna find anything, which he didn't
0: um I was just thinking you mentioned Shadow of the Colossus yes. um twice now as a an inspiration mm-hmm. um but uh i haven't played the game but i have heard about it uh in in that game aren't you basically more fighting gods than trying to resurrect them uh, yeah so and that is one is that yeah so uh, what what made you want to change that aspect of the game
1: um i have no idea um
0: Okay. Not everything needs a connection. I was just curious. Yeah,
1: that. I that's fair. Yeah, and, that, and that's you know that, that's a good question to ask cuz I mean some people might have an answer to stuff like that. I looking back, I um I don't know why I did that. No, yeah, I don't know. All right.
0: Know. Um anything else you wanted to touch on?
1: Um I think one other tiny thing cuz me mentioning that whole history thing, um that did remind me of another thing and it was I kind of messed around with the idea of Um, things being connected but not necessarily um, like directly so Um, I kind of how do I say it's like different events having the same cat or the the, the same catalyst but other than that they're completely unconnected and I I kind of that was something that I messed around like a lot with Um, I'd say for most of the things most of the plot points like in the world um, almost everything has the same catalyst But it's just there's, like, varying different results depending on, like, how directly things were and weren't affected and how far away um, different populations were. And I kind of – this is, like – it's a weird comparison, but I think it proves my point. Um, Comparing to, like, real-world history, um, British um, imperialism and just imperialism in general kind of really – started a lot of events all around the world and while like different nations might be entirely um just separate from each other they might have some sort of association with that um to to make a real world example Mm
0: -hmm. yeah or um like how the black plague Mm -hmm. affected a lot of europe's history
1: Mm -hmm. yeah even if populations aren't yeah exactly that if they're even if they're not directly associated with one another there's this same catalyst event that affected the, the different populations.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally get that.
1: Yeah, that's that's an idea that I toyed around with, um, which the the party doesn't know too much about specifically that, um, but it's it, it's a uh, there are some very direct and very loose connections all to the same thing.
0: Do you have any advice you want to give other DMS on like creating a world or running a a campaign?
1: Um, regarding world building, I I'm not too sure. What I'd have to say, other than, like, just go feral, like, if you think something might be cool, just do it. Um, obviously, with, like, respect to the players, which does bring up, I think, what I think, um, I'd have probably more advice for, like, actually, like, running the whole thing, and more than anything else, communication is super important. Making everything clear between players, and, like, if you have an issue, like, talking it out instead of just, like, I don't know, being mad about it. <laughs> um, communication is just so mm-hmm. important.
0: Yeah, like the uh, I think something that comes up on Reddit a lot is making sure people have like a, a list of boundaries that they want yes. respected during the game.
1: Yes, absolutely. I um I think uh, like having um like like player consent for certain things, it's just it's it's so important. And even if like you know like because I I play with um friends that I've known for years, so usually I have a pretty good grasp on like what they will and won't be okay with. But even then, saying like, hey, I might do this. Is this going to be okay? Um. An example that I would give was, um, they the party was kind of working on this kind of this infiltration sort of mission um, where they were dealing with a bunch of people who were um, slavers, and they were kind of doing this whole mm-hmm. thing with like pretending to sell certain members of their own group to these people. And I remember like a part of the plan, I was like, hey, you know, if you do this, just because of the type of you know these type of people, there might be some sleazy things. Are you comfortable with that? And, you know, I got what everyone was and wasn't fine with. And, of course, you know, there's also, like, common sense as well. Um, but just, like, being very clear on what people are and aren't fine with, like, it, that's just so important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I was just thinking that, like, my campaign world has the Greek gods, so, I mean, if I'm really hewing to the the original content, there would be a lot more uh, rape. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> that's what the stories have a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, And you know, I don't I don't really want to have that in my oh, my yeah. fun time that mm-hmm. I'm having with my friends. So, yeah, it's not there.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I I entirely understand that and there's yeah, definitely like that's part of that whole common sense thing and D&D after all, it is supposed to be a game and so it should be a fun environment for everyone and people, you know, shouldn't be reminded of some things that may make them really uncomfortable like that. And I mean, that that's usually like a, like a common sense sort of thing. Um but even just asking people like, "Hey, is there something even if it's like oddly specific, that just like really makes you uncomfortable, do tell me about that so I can avoid putting that in my game.
0: Yeah, and I mean, we're we're talking about boundaries here, but yeah. uh, I feel like um, tailoring your campaign to your players goes beyond that. Like
1: mm-hmm. it
0: can be, you know, one of my players wanted to have a, uh, an adventure where they they slayed a dragon, so I I made an adventure where they slayed a dragon, which is um, awesome. And. Yeah, and players also usually have a wish list of magic items that they want, so you should like try and you know you don't want to have one every adventure necessarily, but mm-hmm. you should try and have that be the treasure that you're placing for players to get. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the other things that the DMG mentions that um, usually comes up is you just want to match play style,
1: yes, um, definitely, which
0: isn't necessarily something you can do because like you know if you want to have like a, a role playing intrigue. Political adventure, and you have a bunch of players that want to do a hack and slash campaign. There just just isn't compatibility there.
1: Mm -hmm. I I definitely understand that. We had um some uh, early on. I mentioned how I have only a handful of players from that like start of the campaign. Um, there was Mm -hmm. I definitely think there were some compatibility issues there. Um, but there was also which is where my whole thing about communication comes in. There was definitely some communication issues um, on my part. Um, and I, I kind of, I, I learned my lesson and it's unfortunate, um, but I kind of, I'm just going to take that whole event, the, some, some questionable choices that I made early in my DMing and I'm just going to learn from it. And that's, that's definitely why I'm mm-hmm. saying these things about communication. It's just, it's so important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it's not just that we're learning to be better at playing D&D, but we're learning to be better people too.
1: Exactly that too. Yeah. Um, but yes, to comment on your thing mentioning the whole like um certain adventures and like magic items and stuff like that. Um I I do believe there was a point, um this was god, this this had been over a year ago, but I did ask some of my players like, hey, or not some, sorry, um all of my players. Um I, I asked <laughs> I, I promise there's no selective like favoritism. I I that's not what I meant. Um
0: You misspoke. It's all good.
1: I misspoke. <laughs> Um, but I did try to ask all of them, like, hey, what is an item that, like, that you think that you would, like, really like for your character to have? And so I do believe the people who did make specifications, I think they got their item. I remember some, I'm pretty freaking sure they got what they wanted. Um another thing is like i think respecting um like the backstories of different characters and kind of like working that into the world and working with the player and like maybe making it or i wouldn't say maybe but like making an arc around that backstory so that the player feels like you know properly engaged and like their character really is a part of the world um i've with all of my players i have all their characters somehow their backstory is important to everything
0: um yeah that that's definitely in it um that definitely makes the game more fun. You can make it so that they have ownership over the story because it's something that they created. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say some, another aspect of like making everybody comfortable is sometimes you'll have players that don't want to have that type of attention drawn to them Which is and it's okay to, to not do that. Mhm. Um, which isn't necessarily what happens in your case or my case, but I, I've definitely seen that happen before where, you know, t- sometimes someone just wants to hang out with their friends and doesn't need to be the center of the attention for the game.
1: That's, I mean, that's a very fair perspective. And I think, you know, that might just go back to the communication. Each person's different. Some might want it, some might not. And that is a very f- fair point to bring up.
0: Uh, Well, anything else you want to wanna touch on while we're here?
1: Just making sure, like, players do have, like, some form of agency and some amount of control in what they do. Um. To get into a a different error in my DMing, I kind of um, there's kind of like too much happening at once, and it kind of kind of was pulling the players like this way and that, and I I was spoken to, and I was kind of I was a little I was definitely stubborn at first. I'm not I'm not I'm not going to claim being perfect in this. Um, I was kind of stubborn about, like, kind of putting a hold on all these different things that were happening, but I did do it. I was like, you know, well, fine. And then I ended up, like, really liking that, and it helps me DM even better, and it helped the party, like, feel less stressed out. Um, mm-hmm. So definitely think, like, like listening to the players and, like, giving them, like, instead of, like, pushing them in multiple, like, different directions, let them pick the different directions. And, you know, if, I mean, if they are doing, like, absolutely nothing and they need a nudge, then, then they need a nudge. But I think, generally speaking, the players will figure out what they want to do, and just pulling them all over the place just—it's eh, kind of not the greatest thing.
0: Yeah, I'd usually say the best way to design an adventure is something that you uh, want to do as the DM, or something that the players want.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, usually, like there's a bit of a social contract when you're you're playing mm-hmm. D&D. So if someone, if you present a plot hook, the players should really you know take the plot hook because that's that's what you brought for them to play
1: which is a fair point and that that was another issue early on in my dming where i would have those plot hooks and they kind of wouldn't be touched which that that had to do with the whole play style thing i think um mm-hmm. but yeah no i i agree with that i think something that i tried to do which i i, I did kind of mess up a little bit um, I did try to let them, like, I, I dropped, like, a bunch of hooks and I just wanted them to, like, pick what was important and then I'd make the campaign, like, around that. They just ended up picking up, like, all of the hooks, so all of it became important, uh-huh. um, which I think in the future I'll try to maybe limit it to just specific arcs. Um, but at least, at the very least, if anything can be gathered from this, let the players have some amount of agency in what they want to do.
0: Yeah, that's always a good advice. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thanks for coming on the show, Karina. It's been a pleasure.
1: And I thank you for having me.
0: That was Karina and her campaign, see at Kota.